So I found it a little bit humorous that Matt sang 10,000 reasons this morning just because I feel like I have 10,000 statements that I could make about our text today. And uh, I, I had to cut some things out. And, and if you saw my notes right now, there's a lot of chicken scratch and things that I marked out. And one of the things I had to cut last minute was this great story about Randy, young Randy Travis and a drunk George Jones that we'll just have to wait for another day. I'm sure we'll circle back around to it at some point. But I understand two important principles for a Baptist preacher are that you preach the gospel effectively and you preach the gospel efficiently. Okay, Because if I'm up here week after week causing you to get behind people for lunch at Cracker Barrel, then we're going to have a real problem. So um, we're going we're gonna to power through today, get through this as quickly as we can. we got a lot of ground to cover. Today we're picking up in verse 19 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. And today we're going to move for the first time into the historical section of the book. Now John uses the prologue to speak in theological terms as he reflects about the character and nature of Jesus Christ. He wants us to see in the first 18 verses that Jesus is God, yet he is distinct from God the Father. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the source of life. He is the light of the world. He is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And remember, John's sole purpose in writing his gospel is found in chapter 20, verse 31. These words have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John wants to provide his evidence of Jesus so we may believe in him. John wants to provide his experiences with Jesus so we may be saved by him. John wants to present his biography of Jesus so we may have life through him. And so starting in verse 19, John begins to build off these foundational ideas from the prologue. He starts to unravel his historical record of the earthly ministry of Jesus. He compiles every sign, every miracle, every sermon, every conversation, every moment that he believes through the work of the Spirit to be necessary to help prove Jesus is truly the word from the prologue. And so our narrative in verse 19 starts with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the table setter for Jesus. He's the appetizer before the entree. He's the leadoff hitter. He is the opener, and Jesus is the headliner. And like any good opening act, John understands his role. He engages the crowd for a brief moment, then he moves out of the way and he allows the star to walk into the spotlight. Now we've learned a few things about John over the last two weeks. We know that he came to be a witness. We know that he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And we know that he was the last great Old Testament prophet and the first great New Testament preacher. But other than that, John the author doesn't have a whole lot more to say about John the Baptist. The other Gospels provide much more detail about John the Baptist's backstory. The Gospel of Luke, in particular, spends the, virtually the whole first chapter devoted to his history. John's mother, Elizabeth, was related to Mary. His father, Zechariah, was a respected priest. They were childless and barren until God intervened. And John would be the miracle child promised by God through an interaction with an angel. He was the one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. The one who would prepare the way for the Lord. The one who would turn the hearts of the people back to God. And while John the Baptist's history is important and rich, John the author doesn't have much interest in it. 
John the author is much more interested in his witness to Jesus Christ. He doesn't care where John the Baptist lived. He doesn't care what John the Baptist wore. He doesn't comment on his coat of camel hair or his diet of locusts and wild honey or the way that he inevitably smelled. He doesn't care about his background. He doesn't care about his... He only cares about his witness. But for the first 30 years of his life, John the Baptist was virtually silent. In fact, after his birth, we have very little information about what happened to John until he showed up. John lived in relative obscurity until the start of his ministry. All we get is the end of the first chapter of Luke ends with a simple statement. The child grew up and became spiritually strong. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. When he reached an age where he was spiritually strong, probably 12, 13 years old, he went out into the wilderness to wait for his number to be called. And then God spoke to him. Then God commissioned him. And then God sent him. And he suddenly burst on the scene preaching of the coming Messiah. And we can read in the other Gospels about just how remarkable and effective his preaching was. Matthew records crowds gathering from all over Jerusalem and Judea to hear him. He was courageous, bold, and confrontational. He spoke truth. He stepped on on toes. He called for change. He was a throwback to the Old Testament prophets. He was a breath of fresh air for many Jews because they hadn't had a prophet since Malachi. God had been silent for 400 years, then suddenly, out of the wilderness, here comes John. Here comes a real prophet. Here comes a herald of God. And he was preaching the message they've been waiting to hear. The Messiah is coming. He was preaching the message they have been waiting so long to hear. The Messiah is coming. But when his testimony reached Jerusalem, and the Pharisees heard about his crowds, heard about his baptisms, and heard about his excitement, they sent a few men down to gather information on him. That's where we start in verse 19. Let's let's read the text together. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And the prophet Isaiah, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And so our, our, our full text today goes on into verse 34, but we're going to split this up into two sections. Our passage today occurs over two days. First we have verses 19 to 28, that's day one. In day one, we see John the Baptist talking to a delegation sent from the Sanhedrin about his identity. 
explaining exactly who he is in the grand scheme of things. And then in verses 29 through 34, we have the second day, where John speaks to the general crowd about his message as Jesus arrives on the scene. So first, in verses 19 through 28, we learn about John the Baptist's identity. We learn about his identity through his conversation with the religious leaders sent from Jerusalem. Before we look at their questions, let's clarify who the Jews are exactly that John is referring to. See, when John refers to the Jews in his gospel, he's not using it racially or ethnically. He's not talking about the entire nation of Israel. He's not talking about the whole people group. He is always using it to refer to the religious establishment. And so when John says the Jews, he's using it to identify the enemies of Jesus. He's using it to point to the religious elite from the high priest to the Pharisees and Sadducees to highlight anyone in those circles who resented and hated Jesus and his message. So the Jews are, are, are enemies of righteousness, enemies of the truth. And they hear about John's preaching, and they send a coalition down to question him. And they ask him five questions. The first three questions reveal who John is not, and their last two questions reveal who John is. So first, we learn John was not the Messiah. They start by asking, who are you? But based on John's answer, we can safely assume the implication of their first question is, are you the Messiah? And by the way, they're not asking this question from a sincere disposition. They're not even looking for the Messiah. They don't want to find the Messiah. They're just fishing for information. They want to know more about the crazy man from the wilderness with the Messiah complex. But John has a matter-of-fact response. He says, I'm not the Messiah. Despite the large crowds and the religious clout, John always had a clear understanding of his relationship to Jesus. I love in, in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, John's disciples come running to him with concerns about the growing ministry of Jesus. And they run up on him and they essentially say, you know, John, John, Jesus has all the crowds now. All the people are coming to him. They're, they're all leaving you and they're coming to him. He's baptizing tons of people. What are we going to do? And John responds with this beautiful analogy in verse 28 through 30. He says, you yourself bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so John reminds his followers, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. You know, when my brother Tarver and I were, were best men at our youngest brother Will's wedding, there was not a single set of eyes on us that day. So it wasn't about us, it was about Will. Now at the rehearsal dinner, we stole the attention for about 30 minutes to, to have a roast of Will with every embarrassing picture and story in our arsenal, and we made a PowerPoint presentation, and it was a whole thing. And it was hilarious, and I'm not necessarily proud of it. But the next day, on his wedding day, we faded into the background. We decreased so he could increase. And our joy was found in watching his new family created. Our joy was found in seeing two become one. 
to hear their vows, to see their smiles, to experience their happiness and love for one another. See, John never strayed from his primary task. He spent his life pointing others to Jesus. And as he started to fade into the background, as he started to decrease, he rejoiced because Jesus was increasing. And so after John emphatically says, I'm not the Messiah, they ask in verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? Again, the answer was no, John was not Elijah. And it seems odd for the Jews to ask if he was Elijah, mainly because Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who had been dead for hundreds of years. They found out John wasn't the Messiah, so they asked, well, okay, are you a zombie? However, there were some some striking similarities between the two. They looked the same. 2 Kings 1 tells us that Elijah was a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. And Matthew 3 tells us John had camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. And so, of course, their, their, their choices in hair grooming and belts would not have been strong enough evidence to believe Elijah had risen from the dead, but their similarities are more than skin deep. They sounded the same, too. Both were prophets of God. Both preached openly about sin. Both preached openly about sin, particularly in the lives of those who were supposed to be leading God's people. And they both called people to repent of their sin. The similarities were there, but when John is asked, you're Elijah, he clearly says, I'm not. And so then they ask him, still in verse 21, are you the prophet? And again, the answer was no, John was not the prophet. Notice how they don't ask, are you a prophet? They ask, are you the prophet? They likely had in mind a prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And so likely they're asking, are you the prophet from Deuteronomy 18? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the one we should listen to? But they missed the point of the prophecy. The coming prophet was the coming Messiah. They were one and the same. The coming prophet was Jesus. So asking John if he was the Messiah and then asking him if he was the prophet would have been redundant. It would be like asking me, are you Tripp's father? Yes. Are you Tripp's dad? Also, yes. John's answer was the same. No, I'm not the prophet. In verse 22, the Jews changed their strategy. They stopped guessing and they just asked him point blank, well, who are you? What do you say about yourself? The Jews have been commissioned and mandated by the Sanhedrin to get some answers about John the Baptist, and so far they have none. They just know he's not the Messiah, he's not Elijah, and he's not the prophet. So they just ask him point blank, who are you? What do you have to say about yourself? We need an answer. And I love John's response in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, John wasn't the Messiah. John wasn't Elijah. John wasn't the prophet. John was a humble voice in the wilderness. And what's interesting about John's response is not what he does say, but what he doesn't say. See, you can feel the Jews becoming more condescending and arrogant with each question, but John remains humble. And John didn't really have to remain humble. 
we all know when someone's being arrogant and condescending, our, our first move is to be arrogant and condescending back. And John certainly had a leg to stand on to do that. John could have looked at these guys and said, Who am I? Who am I? I'm the last of the prophets. I'm the son of Zechariah, the esteemed priest. My birth was foretold by an angel, by the way. The Holy Spirit descended on me while I was still in the womb. The Father commissioned me with His message in the wilderness, and the Son will one day call me the greatest man who ever lived. That's who I am. Who are you guys? But John could have seized the moment. John could have hammered them. John could have put them in their place. But he didn't. But he didn't. Because to do so, he would have had shifted focus to himself and away from Christ. So instead, he just says, I'm a singular voice crying out in the wilderness. Instead, he says, look, I'm just one voice proclaiming the name of Jesus. There's nothing special about me. I'm not a great leader. I don't live in halls of influence. I don't have a social presence. I have no wealth, formal education, or connections. I don't even have a place to live. I've just been commissioned by God to prepare the way for Jesus. I'm a nobody pointing to somebody. And when John claims to be a voice in the wilderness, he's alluding to Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, God is preparing to return the Jews from exile. Because of their sin, he had allowed Babylon to take them captive and destroy Judah. But now he is preparing to deliver them. And so this voice in the wilderness is crying out for the roads to be fixed for the exiles to travel home. For steep grades to be leveled, for potholes to be filled. They need to prepare a clear path because God is going to deliver His people. The voice in the wilderness is essentially saying, prepare yourselves for God's salvation. And John's role is the same. He is preparing God's people for the salvation coming through Jesus Christ. And so then in verse 25, we get their final question. And when we get their final question, we start to see what motivated the whole thing. They ask, then why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? So if, if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, then why are you baptizing? What gives you the right? What gives you the authority? See, the Jews were obsessed with power and authority. And their thirst for power and authority would become a constant tension with Jesus later. And so they could not understand why a relatively unknown person from the wilderness felt authorized and empowered to baptize others. But John argues they're missing the point. John tries to help them understand. In verse 26 he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. In other words, John says, why are you so focused on me? Why are you so caught up with me? I'm only baptizing with water. Another one is coming. But he's actually already on the way. He's the one you need to talk to. He's the one you need to get to know. He's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
And so at this point, it's been over 40 days since John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And since then, Jesus has been enduring every form of temptation in the desert. And now, he's en route. And he's going to arrive the following day. And so before we get to that in verse 29, we need to look at one other thing about John that John says his relationship with Jesus. He says he's not worthy to untie his sandals. Does anyone in here like feet? But please don't answer that question. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have asked that. But untying sandals and caring for dirty, nasty feet would have been the job of the lowest servant. That's why when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, it was such a a stark and incredible message to them. So as John is working to elevate Christ, he really wants to help them understand his standing before Christ. He wants them to see that he is nothing. He's the lowest of the low. He's just a voice with a message. He's just a servant with a master. And so what John says in chapter 3 about Jesus, that he must increase and I must decrease appears to be his life mantra. It's not about John. It's not about the preacher. It's about the one whom the preacher speaks. It's not about John. It's about Jesus. And he was on the way. And in verse 29, he arrives. So let's pick back up reading there. The next day, He saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself do not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself do not know him, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. And so in verses 29 through 34, we hear John the Baptist's message. In verse 29, we pick back up on the following day and Jesus entering the public square for the first time. And as he walks into the equation, John proclaims three things about Jesus. First, John proclaims Jesus is the Lamb of God in verse 29. John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, biblical scholars go to a few different places to explain the use of the phrase the Lamb of God. And there are a lot of parallels in the Old Testament and ancient Jewish customs, but the phrase that follows, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, points to a lamb working as both a sacrifice and a substitute for us. And the Jews would have obviously been familiar with these concepts. Because Jesus' arrival takes place a few days before the annual Passover celebration. And the focus of Passover was the sacrifice of a lamb, which served as a reminder of God's deliverance of his people from their captivity in Egypt. In Exodus 12, God commanded each family to choose a lamb, kill it, and wipe its blood on the doorpost so he could recognize his people and he would send death to every home not covered by the blood of the lamb. And so years later, they continued to celebrate Passover because God passed over his people. And so as Jews gathered each year in Jerusalem, they would remember this work of God and each family would bring a lamb to be sacrificed on the temple altar. But lambs weren't only sacrificed during Passover. 
Every day two lambs were killed to account for the sins of the people, one in the morning and one in the evening. And so the sacrificial system of lambs ultimately pointed to the Lamb of God who would offer His life as the final sacrifice. Jesus was the final sacrifice because He was the perfect substitute. He completely and absolutely paid the penalty for our sins. His death in our place was sufficient to pay our debt. John is proclaiming the great joy of the gospel. We don't have to pay for our sin. Jesus paid for it. We don't have to endure God's wrath. Jesus endured it. Here's how Paul explains it in Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus canceled our record of debt. Now you may be in a stage of life where the concept of debt is kind of foreign to you at this point, or you may be in a, you know, you may be in a stage of life where you're debt-free. But Lacey and I have been in debt since we got married in 2011. You know, I've heard marriage counselors say that it's a really good idea for a spender to marry a saver so that there's that, that tension in the marriage and they can kind of work out all the financial struggle together. Uh, Lacey and I just skipped over that. We were two spenders that got linked up. And the good news is there's never any tension about money. We just spent money. And uh, we got some debt because of it. And before we uh, bought our house, we'd been working on uh, chipping away at some of our student loan debt and credit card debt. And uh, we were using Dave Ramsey principles to snowball it. And, but we live on one income. And, and snowballing our debt's a little bit of a slower process for us. And we trust in Dave's plans and we see it working, but we are just kind of overwhelmed sometimes by some of the success stories. If you listen to his podcast or follow his Facebook page, you'll read these stories about people and they'll say, we paid off $87,000 in debt in four weeks. And you'll be like, what? How? How? But debt can feel insurmountable sometimes. It can feel impossible to overcome sometimes. It can feel like you may never be able to pay back what you owe sometimes. See, in the same way, we once stood condemned in the courtroom of heaven. We were born into sin, we were born into rebellion, we were born into death, and we were staring in the face of an overwhelming debt to a holy God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and canceled the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Jesus paid our debt in full on the cross. He's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Second, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Pick back up in verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so John the author doesn't give us any detail on John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, but in verse 32, John the Baptist recounts Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. And the, the event is described in greater detail in the other 
three Gospels, but here John just recaps two key components of Jesus' baptism. The Father's approval and the Spirit's arrival. In the other Gospel accounts, the Father opens up the heavens and proclaims, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And so we know the Father identifies Jesus to the crowd, but we learn in verse 33 that the Father also identified Jesus to John. As John admits, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, so God the Father, reveals to John, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then also John mentions the Spirit descending on Jesus twice. In verse 32 he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. And in verse 33 he says, he saw the Spirit descend and remain. So in the Jordan River, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it remained on him for the duration of his ministry. Three years later, his disciples would be filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And from that moment in Christian history forward, every believer has received the Spirit at the moment of conversion. And so John the Baptist is working here to draw a clear contrast between water baptism and spirit baptism. John's baptism was only preparatory. It could only symbolize repentance, but Jesus' baptism was final because it sealed repentance. So when a person places their trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, they are baptized with the Spirit and welcomed into God's family. And then finally, Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 34 says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So if John was required to give an ex a statement about his experiences with Jesus, he could sum it up with verse 34. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. John knew the Messiah was coming in his lifetime. He knew he would be part of rolling out the red carpet for him, but he did not meet Jesus for 30 years. For 30 years, he waited and waited for his moment. And when his moment finally came, John had no doubt. When his moment finally came, when Jesus finally came, he said, I can tell you, this is the Son of God. John was supremely confident that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And so we're often tempted to skip the appetizer in favor of the main course. But we should never gloss over the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus the Messiah. John the Baptist waited 30 years to share the gospel. And today, we're way past waiting. Today, we sit on the other side of redemptive history. Today, we are 2,000 years removed from Calvary. And if we believe John's testimony to be true, if we believe Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who sacrifices and the Son of God who saves, then we have no choice but to share His gospel with others. And you may say, Pastor, I'm heartbroken over the lost in Lowndes County and I'm burdened by some of these empty pews around me, but I'm scared to death to start a gospel conversation with another person. Start with your one. Intercede, invest, and invite. Pray for them. Spend time with them. Look for an opportunity to turn an everyday conversation into a gospel conversation. Don't be overwhelmed by the task. Remember, the gospel has always moved one person at a time, one family at a time. John the Baptist was not a prominent figure in Jerusalem. 
He was not a priest from the temple. He was just a voice crying out in the wilderness. He started preaching in a geographical and spiritual wasteland, but his call to repentance resonated in people's hearts all the same. And they came from great distances to hear him because they were starving for an authentic word from God. Church, Lowndes County is starving. And they don't even know it. Let's start showing them where they can find bread. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the example of John the Baptist. Lord, I pray that we could be bold like John the Baptist and humble like John the Baptist. We remember in some of the other Gospels the way that John came up on the Pharisees and spoke boldly to those that are against Jesus. He called them a brood of vipers. Lord, I pray that, that this congregation could be bold with the Gospel in the same way. And Lord, that we could also be humble. That we could also understand our part in the process. Lord, that we could take hold of, of, of John's mantra that, that we would de- decrease so that you can increase. Lord, that we would, we would get out of your way and let you work in us and through us. Lord, that's our prayer. We thank you for your son. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.